Margaret Romero, what will readers get in your new book, The Code? Well, we've had biographies of tech leaders like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. What they're going to get in The Code is a biography of Silicon Valley itself or the modern American technology industry itself. I, I felt that there was a, so many people, I've been studying this region for so long and this industry for so long, and people always ask me, what's Silicon Valley's secret? How do you build another one? And so I set out to answer those questions for them in this book. Yours is a story of 75 years of mm -hmm. government support uh, and encouragement of the uh, tech industry. I want to show you a clip uh, that is uh, where we are today. Uh, this is from last year on Capitol Hill with Mark Zuckerberg in front of a Senate panel. Let's watch. Car companies face a lot of competition. If they make a defective car, it gets out in the world. People stop buying that car, they buy another one. Is it an alternative to Facebook in the private sector? Uh, yes, Senator. The average American uses eight different apps okay. to communicate with their friends and stay in touch with people, okay. ranging from texting is, apps to is email. The same to, service you provide. Well, we is, provide a number of different services. Is Twitter the same as what you do? It overlaps with a portion of what we do. You don't think you have a monopoly? Uh, it certainly doesn't feel like that to me. Okay. <laughs> Mr. Zuckerberg, would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Um... <laughs> Uh, no. If you've messaged anybody this week, would you share with us the names of the people you've messaged? Uh, Senator, no, I would probably not choose to do that publicly here. I think that may be what this is all about. Your right to privacy, the limits of your right to privacy, and how much you give away in modern America in the name of, quote, connecting people around the world. So since that hearing happened, uh, other uh, industry uh, titans have been in front of panels on Capitol Hill with similar sorts of exchanges. Mm -hmm. And today, while we're talking, down at the White House, there is a gathering of people who are aggrieved on the right side of the spectrum who feel that they are not getting access, that they've somehow been censored. All of this is wrapped up in one big question. What's the state of the relationship between big tech and the government today? It's uh, It's pretty rocky. And it's really interesting because it's such a contrast. Here we are talking in 2019. If you dial back even five years ago when I started work on this book, the mood was so different. There was a lot of the techno-optimism of Silicon Valley was something that was shared by a lot of leaders in Washington on both sides of the aisle. The idea that these private companies had done these extraordinary things, that their products could be beneficial, were beneficial, that the connection, the communication was going to open things up. Think about how presidential campaigns like Barack Obama's used Facebook, for example, and used the Internet so effectively to marshal support. And that was something that was seen as this is the future not only of campaigning, but also of governing. And now the mood is very, very different. Of course, 2016, that election was a turning point, the, the recognition of how different social media platforms had functioned as disruptors to the electoral process that had the potential that possibility, the very real, the reality that that outside actors perhaps had, had been using social media platforms to, to mess with the election that might have had a consequential effect on, on outcomes, and, um, and the real, very real threat that that could continue going forward. And that um, combined with the permeation of these technologies and platforms in our lives, I mean, think about the products of the 
biggest five American technology companies, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, even if you're the biggest Luddite and you're like, I'm not going to be on any of these things, it is really hard to go through your life from dawn to dusk in modern America without in some way using or or having being you know affected by a product made by those companies and so that kind of totalizing effect is something that is driving this conversation in Washington because the technology you know what is the role of these companies in in shaping the political and social life of modern America what are the characteristics of these companies that got us to this point uh, was it hubris? Was it naivete? Was it inattention to certain details of their mm -hmm. business? What do you think are the factors? Well, I think it's really helpful to look at the history of Silicon Valley itself, not just of these companies, because these companies are the product of a of a business culture, a business, an ecosystem. I call it a Galapagos, a very distinctive uh, community that kind of grew for a long time in relative isolation from Washington, D.C., from Wall Street, from the capitals of finance and, and politics, even though it was deeply affected by them from the very beginning. And you have, um, you know, you have high-tech venture capitalists who are not only funders of startup companies, of new companies, but also advisors, mentors. And they are kind of carrying on this distinctive business culture from one to the one generation to the next. It's a culture focused on growth, on making the technology better, faster. Um, it's a, uh, you know, Facebook for a while had posters up in their headquarters that said, move fast and break things. And that was the sort of this notion of you move, and this is not something that was a Facebook, you know, you can look at Intel, you can look at Seattle-based companies like Microsoft that were very, you know, to in order to get your, you needed to get your products to market quickly, you needed to dominate your market quickly, or else your competitors want to eat you alive. And so you had to move very fast, and if something got broken along the way, then that was, that was the cost of doing business. And that's, you know, that, that's part of how we got where we are, not necessarily of Malevolence, you know, these leaders didn't set out to say, oh, we're going to be this disruptive force in this way. I liken it to a runaway train that, that this incredibly effective technology, they were so good at doing what they set out to do, but it's had all of these unintended consequences. Yours is a story of 75 years of history, evolution, really. And we want I really want to go through some of the decades mm -hmm. because each one of them has its characters and yeah. its stories to tell. But there are themes that come across, and you referenced one of them, which is the uh, government involvement and support and encouragement of this, and we'll get into some more details. Mm -hmm. Also, light regulation, uh, which yeah. it might be something that's changing. We can talk yeah. about that. But another theme throughout the, the book uh, is that um, high tech has been and maybe continues to be the prominence of mostly white males. Yeah. One character in your book that works her way all the way through is someone by the name of Anne Hardy. Who mm -hmm. is she, and what story does her life tell you about the tech industry? Anne Hardy is one of those, those hidden figures of Silicon Valley that I think her story tells us so much about how the, the, the industry has changed and also how we can understand this continuing gender imbalance. She, in 1956, walks into IBM's headquarters in New York City few years out of college. She's heard that there are programming jobs to be had. She knows nothing about computers. But she, uh, they said, they, 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 a friend of hers told her about this job, said, they're hiring people, they'll teach you on the job. So she shows up. And she gets a job as an entry-level programmer. She works her way up and becomes a manager. She's managing a team. She's at IBM for, uh, you know, the better part of a decade. 
Uh, but she's combating sexism every single rung of the ladder. And she's at one point, she's managing a team, an all-male team, and she discovers that every single man on her team is making more than she is. <laughs> and she demands a raise, gets a raise, and she still realizes that some of the people she's supervising still are making more than she does. So she left. She ends up in California uh, by the middle part of the 1960s, and she is just, she's passionate about the technology. She's really interested in programming and using computers. And so she um, uh, ends up at a small startup that's growing on Palo Alto that's in this new business called Time Sharing, which is the, the internet before the internet. Um, it's networked computers. It's, this is a time when computers were main, giant mainframes, or they were mini computers. But there was nothing mini about a mini computer. It was like refrigerator sized. It was this big device. And they were very expensive and they were usually housed in you know, corporate offices, government labs. You couldn't have one in your small office. You couldn't have, certainly couldn't have one in your home. So time sharing was a way for people remotely through connecting through telephone cable to connect into the computer power of a remote device. So Ann Hardy builds the operating system for this company to build this time-sharing network. When she's hired, she's kind of hired accidentally because she walks in and says, you know, I can do this. Later on, her boss, the CEO of the company, says, you know, I never, if I'd known how central this operating system was to our business, I never would have hired a woman to do it. The idea that you would be a technical woman and that you also would be a woman who would be an executive, someone with authority, was so alien. And look, it was the 1960s. It was... Uh, you know, there were very few women. And, you know, this was a different time in American, in corporate America generally. But what happens in tech is, and particularly in the Valley, because networked connections, the connections between people, where people kind of pick, work with people from one, the same people from one company to another. They use their network to hire and to invest and to choose who, who they're going to work with. That the, the, the very overwhelmingly male network of the 1960s kind of gets a bit trapped in amber. There, it, it becomes harder for new voices and new people to break in. The other thing that works, a challenge for people like Ann Hardy, in addition to kind of the casual everyday sexism of corporate retreats where people would say, well, the women, you know, you can't come because if the women, if you come, then we'll have to invite our wives and then we can't, you know, kind of have dalliances on the side while we're at this corporate retreat, you know, that, that sort of stuff. But aside from that, the work habits of tech, kind of work hard, play hard, which continues today. Working in tech is this full immersion activity. You are supposed to be all in. Part of what made Silicon Valley go, quite frankly, was the fact that these male executives, these male engineers, could go completely heads down building their semiconductors, building their computers, working on their software. And they had wives at home who were kind of taking care of the rest of life. So those women are a really important part of Silicon Valley's story, too. So uh, as we go through this, we're going to be hearing uh, the Silicon Valley and another word, coding. And yeah. you tell the story about how each of those words made their way into our lexicon. Start with coding. Where did it come from? So coding came from sort of early on when, uh, you know, the very the early days of digital computing, the first digital computers, the art and the, the science of computing was considered to all rest in the hardware, in the machine itself, building the machine. And the origins of first all digital computer comes out of World War II. It's an Army-funded project based at the University of Pennsylvania called the ENIAC. 
It's later commercialized as the UNIVAC, which was really the first commercial computer. In the very early days of, of computing, UNIVAC was kind of a, a brand name like Kleenex or Google. The computers referred to as UNIVACs. In fact, there's a really great political story, a Washington pol political story, um, involving a UNIVAC. The first appearance of a computer on television was in the 1952 election eve of the presidential election. And Walter Cronkite, newly hired anchor at CBS, is managing the election night coverage. And they have a UNIVAC computer that's supposed to predict the outcome. This is Eisenhower versus Stevenson, round one. And the UNIVAC predicts, correctly it turns out, an overwhelming victory for Eisenhower, which was so decisive in its predictions that all of the programmers were like, wait, I think maybe they've got it wrong. <laughs> it turns out it was entirely right. But coding, at the time when the hardware was considered to be so important, the software was kind of like, it's like being a telephone operator. To program a computer, you were just plugging in different wires in different places. It wasn't considered to be an art or a science. It was just considered to be very routine. That you were that that coding something was essentially like data entry. So a coder was someone who was kind of a drone. Unsurprisingly, this was seen as women's work. Well, if your secretaries, telephone operators, well, you know, it's kind of basic. A woman can do it. They can, you know, they can do it. And what turns out, of course, is that programming is very complicated. If for some reason you've there's some misfire in the program, if there's a bug in the program, then you have to do a workaround. You have to think about how you iterate, how you, it's a very, very creative process. And so what computer specialists and technologists realize is that, wow, the software, programming the software is really where it's at. And so as that becomes more professionalized, and as the discipline of computer science become, is created. By the late 60s, you have women, not only in the United States, but other scholars of science and technology, like Marie Hicks and Nathan Ensminger, have written about how women are pulled, pushed out of programming um, because it's become a more high-prestige activity. The coders increasingly become men. But the name code itself came from, I mean, is, it a, is it a product? Code? The that, code. Uh -huh. Well, yes, I mean, there's there's code, there's software code, the actual coding, but the, uh, but the sort of the, the idea that a code, um, you know, it's, of course, coming out of World War II, it's a time of, you know, code code cracking and deciphering, sure. but, but also is there's the routinization of it. It's mm -hmm. not seen as a particular, you know, you have a, it's something where there's a pattern. Like Morse there, code, for example. Yes, yeah, like Morse code, mm -hmm. the, where you aren't, it isn't a creative process, which really coding is. It, it is extremely, you know, it's something where there is um, the best coders are people who are always thinking about and thinking in rather complex ways about, and particularly now with, you know, programming is much more, much more complex. But even then, you know, in a way, programming was even tougher when you had um, less memory, when you had to be brutally efficient in kind of getting everything um, as, as the, getting the commands to be as short as possible, to use as little memory as possible. And now we have these incredible powerful, incredibly powerful machines in which you have a lot, of more la lot more latitude to stuff things in. How did Silicon Valley get its name? Ah, oh, this is a great story. So Silicon Valley was, it, it didn't, wasn't called Silicon Valley until 1971. Before that, it was the Santa Clara Valley, you know, it was a fruit growing valley in California. 
Uh, it was uh, it gets its name in uh, and so what's happening in 1971? The major industry in the valley is silicon semiconductors, um, the, the chip microchips, and made of silicon. And uh, it turns out that there were at the, at the time the main customers for these semiconductor companies were not other were not people like you and me. They were other companies. They were computer makers, the big computer makers like IBM and Honeywell, who were mostly based elsewhere. And so the sales guys for these big computer companies would come out, and they started kind of colloquially referring to the Valley as Silicon Valley among us, because that was just the main, the main action. And I, there's a reporter uh, for, an for a trade paper that is based in Palo Alto, Electronics News, a guy named Don Hoffler. And he uh, is has he's writing this big feature story in January 1971 about the silicon semiconductor industry in the Santa Clara Valley, and he gets wind of the fact that Silicon Valley is kind of the colloquial nickname. He's like, oh, that's a good, that's a good thing to to tie. I needed a headline for the story, so he titles the story, headlines the story, Silicon Valley USA, and that name stuck, although it was something that was bandied about in the valley for a while within the industry. And it really is only in, it's not until the late 70s when it starts becoming kind of disseminating out. And you, I, find, I found in my research references in, you know, the Washington Post and New York Times and Fortune magazine start talking about the valley, the Santa Clara Valley. And then occasionally they'll start saying Silicon Valley in quotation marks. The Post is referring to Silicon Valley in quotation marks until about 1979. <laughs> and then it breaks out of its... Then it becomes more of a familiar lexicon, but it, it's a very, you know, it was, a, it was out of the way place. It was seen as so off to the side of the main action for so long. Well, we're going to go back in time to tell this story as you do in your book. Before we do, I'd like people to know a little bit about you. Yes. Uh, so uh, how did you get interested in this? I got interested in this. Uh, I was in graduate school and I was, um, I knew that I wanted to write a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really a, I, I worked in politics, worked in Washington politics before I went to graduate school. I came to graduate school to, to study political history, and I was interested in looking at the Eisenhower years and looking at the domestic impact of the Cold War. And I kind of came at, funnily enough, I was coming at it very much as a kind of political junkie. I was interested in what the Eisenhower White House was doing and, and what, what you know lawmakers in Congress were doing in the 50s. And, uh, and then, of course, the, the big, you know, the greatest domestic one of the greatest domestic impacts of the Cold War was this: what the military-industrial complex did to, to seed the electronics industry and the computer industry. And I realized that, oh, this is the story. This is the story of how this, this whole new economy was built and how, and I've always been really interested, ever since I was working in Washington, in how business and government interact with one another. They they have an antagonistic relationship, but they also have a collaborative relationship. I mean, the real story of American history is one of public-private partnership in many ways, in ways that sometimes are unseen. Uh, and so this was, I think this story is a really great way to get into that, to understanding how can government support business and vice versa? How do you have, you know, the funny thing about the Cold War is you have the biggest of big government programs, Right. You have the space race. You have what Eisenhower memorably labels the military-industrial complex. That becomes the foundation for this entrepreneurial flywheel 
of incredible creation and innovation and wealth, private wealth creation. And in fact, an industry that is kind of considers itself uh, an industry that built itself on its own, that, that actually government becomes, has become almost invisible to many of the people who are in Silicon Valley, who are the creators of these companies and these technologies. They think there isn't a role, but actually there is. And that's part of the, that's part of the magic, actually, that it is kind of a government out of sight. What had you done in Washington? I, uh, I was, uh, like a lot of young people who come to Washington, I came here via a political campaign. I worked on the 1992 presidential run of Bill Clinton. I was, um, I just graduated from college. I was from Arkansas. I, um, like any good history major, I didn't have a job. <laughs> no, history majors get lots of jobs. <laughs> Everyone should know. Um, but uh, I, I came home to try and figure out what to do next and uh, how to uh, what, what I was going to be when I grew up, and I was like, "Well, heck, heck, I'll just I'll volunteer on the campaign." And that volunteer position, within a span of a week, turned into a job, an entry level job. I started in the correspondence office, as many great political staff careers start, <laughs> and and then one thing led to another. And then when your candidate wins, of course, everything changes. So I spent um, the first Clinton term and a little extra uh, here in Washington D.C., working in the White House, working at. Uh, HHS, working both for President Clinton and for Vice President Gore. So I was, um, it was an extraordinary education. I call it my first graduate school. It, uh, aside from just kind of being, uh, witnessing things as one does when you're a young staffer kind of on the perimeter of the room or, you know, in the room where it happens, if not making, not making the decisions, but, but watching very powerful people struggle with the decisions they have to make. It gave me this appreciation for the humanity of politics, particularly how, you know, even even the people at the highest levels of power, whether it be in government or a business, they're just human beings who are trying to figure it out. <laughs> and they're, um, they're very smart, they're very talented, but they're doing their best and they're trying to implement the vision that they see. Um, it, it gave me a more under, an understanding um, of, of how power works and also empathy for um, where different people are coming from. Uh, and, and I think being a historian has given me even more empathy, kind of drawing back. Um, I've now spent, um, you know, 20 years on the other side of the fence, um, looking at this not as a someone who's in politics, but looking at politics and business from someone who's trying to understand why people are doing what they do. And I think looking at the history of Silicon Valley or looking at the history of, of, of American American history writ large, it is a way not only of better understanding our present, which is really one thing I, I hope that this book will help readers do, is, is understand how do we get to this big tech now and then where do we go from there. You really do need the backstory. But it also helps you kind of get back from the, all the noise and the fighting of right now, of who's right, of who's wrong, and draw back and say, okay, why do people make these choices? And what were they hoping to do? And what didn't work out? And then, then you have a richer understanding and perhaps some more empathy for why different actors are doing what they do. How long did you work on this book? I worked on this for the better part of six years, really, from, from idea to execution. I moved down. I live in Seattle. Um, my family and I moved down to Palo Alto for two years. Um, uh, I had, um, was really, really fortunate. I had sabbatical fellowships and, um, and had... Uh, a way to, to be down there. And I interviewed a lot of people. 
I had to, in many ways, build my own archive. You know, historians like to go to archives. We go to Library of Congress. We go to the National Archives. We, you know, get in the dusty boxes and do our thing. When this history, there isn't one, you know, there isn't a Library of Congress. There isn't a, a National Archives, although government archives were very important to me. And archives like the C-SPAN archives were important to me, you know, the, 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 the more recent modern archives. But I had to draw in different things, talk to people who were there when it happened, uh, draw in oral histories that others had conducted of people who were, you know, no longer with us, um, corporate records. Sometimes people would just give me file folders that they'd kept in their attics for the last 30 years. Uh, so, you know, one of the things, I think one of the real challenges and one of the really important things going forward that I'm thinking a lot about is how can we make sure that this history, which is in the making, is going to be preserved? Because the tech industry is very future tense. They're like, we're building the future. Like, why do we care about dusty old paper? But it really matters. Um, not only the, the technology, understanding how the technologies themselves were developed, but also what were the business decisions that were surrounding those technologies? Who were the people? What's the really rich tapestry of the place? Um, this is going to be extremely important, not just for historians now like me, but historians going forward. So right after the war, uh, you write about the fact that there was really a competition between two very different geographic areas, Boston yes. mm -hmm. and Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. uh, who were the patrons in each? Why were those two cities? You mentioned Pennsylvania. So yes. why was it Boston and, and uh, Palo Alto? And who were the big patrons behind it? And then I'll ask you, why did Silicon Valley actually triumph in this? Why did they triumph? Yeah. So coming out of World War II, you, you know, you had Boston was... Um, as the as the U.S. government decided to get into the science business in a big way, the National Science Foundation is created in 1949. Um, there's a decision, an unprecedented decision, to go big on uh, public investment in peacetime research and development. Uh, it's a you know, of course, it was it was peacetime only in uh, you know technicality. It was the Cold War. It was very much an investment that was made with the Cold War struggle in mind to compete um, in science and education with the Soviets, uh, it, not only a matter of prestige, but also a matter of developing, you know, the, the, the nuclear realities of the nuclear, the realities of the nuclear age in which um, the United States now had, had entered into. And, um, and so Boston was the kind of 800-pound gorilla because what was in Boston, Harvard and MIT. And the, uh, these were the premier research institutions of, of, the, of the age. Yes, the University of Pennsylvania and its Moore School of Engineering, where ENIAC was developed, was also important. But the leaders of what's really important, what gave Boston this really signal advantage, aside from the fact that it had been a, a center of government-sponsored research during the war, was that the leaders of those institutions and the leaders of the government research effort were from Harvard and MIT, <laughs> including one of the people I, I talk about in the book, Vannevar Bush, who was kind of the ultimate, the original... Um, entrepreneurial professor um, of uh, who has this extraordinary career that's crossing over academia, government, and industry. He's a founder of Raytheon um, while he's an electrical engineering professor at MIT. Then he goes on during World War II to become, uh, leads the, uh, the research and development effort, the wartime research and development office um, under Franklin Roosevelt. He's known as Roosevelt's general of physics and has a very high public profile then. And he is really the person who among of the many other things he cooks up, he is he is someone who kind of conceives of this post-war research network that's based in a lot of universities. And so that explains Boston. 
Boston is, you know, a lot of money is already f is funneling in kind of after World War II. Um, there is, and there's electro electronics industry is based on the East Coast. There are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of existing industry. What explains Silicon Valley? Santa Clara Valley is, you know, its biggest export is prunes at the time. It was known for being the prune capital of America. It, it's, it's great. The asset, it had two assets, however. It was on the Pacific Coast where a lot of wartime military activity had gone on and continued to go on, so military installations in the Bay Area. And it had Stanford. So Stanford University was a respectable institution but was better known for its football team than its you know, being a kind of a Harvard of the West. It wanted to be a Harvard of the West. And, but it had a great asset in this guy named Fred Terman, who had gone to MIT for graduate school, had been a student of Vannevar Bush's, and during World War II had gone to Boston to work under Bush in this research effort. And he's sitting in Cambridge looking at what's going on, and he, and he knows that after the war, Bush and others are building this infrastructure to continue forward, and research universities like Harvard and MIT are going to get a big piece of this action. And he writes to a colleague in the middle of the war and says, there is an opportunity that's about to blossom. And Stanford has a, has a possibility of becoming a nationally influential institution like Harvard, or it could kind of stay like Dartmouth. Good, but not having a real effect on the national conversation. Now, I don't know what Dartmouth administrators then or now would think of that assessment. Um, it was a little uncharitable. Dartmouth has had has its own important role in the history of computing. But nonetheless, Terman goes back to Palo Alto, talks to his um, the incoming president of the university, a guy named Wallace Sterling, who was a historian, who, who joined Terman in saying, okay, we are going to turn Stanford into the premier Cold War university. We are going to reorganize the curriculum. We're going to build up the physics department. We're going to build up specialized engineering programs and laboratories that really meet exactly what the Cold War military wants us to do. And, you know, no other university in the world has done, did that. I mean, they, they kind of, the, the architecture department evaporated. They kind of did away with other things to build up science and engineering. And they formed these really close alliances with industry, encouraged um, students like Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett to start companies nearby. They encouraged uh, technologists from elsewhere, a guy named Bill Shockley, who was a co-inventor of the transistor, to come to Palo Alto and set up shop. Um, the original silicon semiconductor company was uh, was set up by Bill Shockley, and other and other electronics companies and defense contractors followed. So Stanford was this hub of uh, not the only factor, but was incredibly critical. So uh, one of the things that people outside of, of Silicon Valley always associate with the run of it is <clears throat> the stock options that make people, <clears throat> excuse me, make people so wealthy yes. uh, if their companies succeed. You write that that began all the way back in 1957 with HP. What's the story? Yes. So HP was founded in 1939, goes public in 1957, and from its founding, its two founders, Hewlett and Packard really set out to form a very different sort of company. One that was, I mean, think about the, the big, big business of the 40s and 50s, kind of the, the big corporations, the Detroit automakers. They wanted something very different. They wanted a non-hierarchical company, no corner offices, no managerial suits and ties, no unions, because that signals that 
something's wrong with management employee relations if you had to have a union. They were not getting along. Instead, they wanted to create something that was kind of like a scientific laboratory that was much more egalitarian, where people felt free to come to, you know, didn't feel hemmed in by their job description, that there wasn't as much of a ladder, where people were shirt-sleeved, wandered, uh, what, what Hewlett and Packard called, called it was management by walking around or wandering around. They would just, uh, rather than call people in and say, what are you doing, they would just be on the shop floor and see what was going on. So this kind of meritocratic idea, this, and, and then everyone got stock options. They got, now, well, not everyone, not some of the people on the manufacturing assembly lines, but the white-collar employees did. And so everyone had a stake in the company's financial success. And this becomes the model that company after company after company in the Valley follows. So we talked about the importance of the space race, Sputnik launch in 1957 mm -hmm. for all the money flowing in this. I want to fast forward uh, to the 1960s and uh, talk about one government policy that changed in an unexpected way, and that is 1965. Uh, yeah. the LBJ signing in an immigration law. Mm -hmm. We're having a big immigration debate yeah. now. How does this 1965 immigration bill figure in the history of Silicon Valley? It is tremendously important. I think the 1965 Hart-Seller Act, the Immigration Reform Act, is perhaps one of the most consequential economic policies of the, the latter half of the 20th century. And the funny thing is, it was not intended to be that at all. In fact, as Lyndon Johnson is signing it on Liberty Island in October 1965, he says in his remarks, this is not a revolutionary bill. It was seen as kind of a, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's on the Civil Rights Act in some ways, because what preceded it was an immigration system that had quotas on, based on national origin. It was a racially discriminatory quota system for, for immigrants. It had been established in the 1920s at a time of fierce anti-immigrant sentiment that was very much driven by prejudice against Southern and Eastern Europeans, Catholics, Jews, people who were seen as other at the time. And that was holding, basically holding fast until the mid-60s. And so Johnson um, and liberal Democrats kind of pushed, pushed through this immigration reform that was really just supposed to set things right. And and the assurance that Johnson gave some of his fellow Democrats, including Southern Democrats, who were a little worried about what this liberalization of immigration might bring, said, look, this is not going to change anything. And it turns out it did. It opened up the door, America's doors to immigrants from around the world, including huge streams of immigration from South and East Asia. Many of these immigrants, Taiwan, Hong Kong, India, China, end up in the Santa Clara Valley and Silicon Valley. They become the engineering backbone of the valley. They go on to found, found companies in disproportionate numbers. By the 1980s, you have one-third of the companies founded in the valley are founded by people who are, who are foreign-born from either India or China. Those two, And then on top of that, there are other people from other places. You also have refugee programs. You have um, refugees from the for former Soviet Union. They and their children go on to found companies. Google is co-founded by the child of a Soviet refugee. Um, you have other refugees that come earlier in American history. Andy Grove, uh, the legendary leader of Intel, came to the United States as a teenager after World War II from Hungary, worked at, with, you know, penniless uh, with you know nothing, no, nothing, nothing would have signaled to to immigration officials that he was destined to be one of 
Silicon Valley's greatest and most influential business leaders, and yet he was. So that immigration system has been really critical and continues to be really critical, you know, for the, the fact that why is Silicon Valley so great? It, it's not because Americans are better at technology than everyone else. It's because Silic the, the American system has allowed the free movement of people and capital and has drawn people from around the world like a magnet from all over the world as students, as entrepreneurs, to the Valley and to American tech centers. And that has been really fundamental to what we've, you know, what we have today and the, the American dominance in the tech space. The 1970s are a pivotal decade in reading your book. Yeah. So much happened. What are the most critical things people need to know about the 1970s? The 1970s is this moment when a new generation, a new baby boom generation comes, comes of age in the Valley. Um, and they have been, you know, they are products of this space race, Cold War age pushed towards science and technology. When they're elementary school students, they get exposed to science and, you know, want to become astronauts. When they're in college, they go to the college computer lab and learn about punch cards and understand how to program, learn how to program computers and have interface with computers for the first time, work on time-sharing terminals. And But they also are coming of age in the Vietnam era, in the Watergate era, an era of when government is increasingly seen as, um, a, a, you know, government is, is using its power to for destruction, for corruption. Um, you, have, you have people coming up who are, uh, you know, are much more interested in turning away from big government and big business and using computing, thinking about how computers, which up to that time had mostly been, you know, where do computers, who, who, who had computers? It was big government agencies. It was big corporations because they were so darn expensive and so big, right? They weren't, they weren't something that ordinary people could access. And so this new generation is like, how can we take this, these computer, this computer power, this incredibly powerful machine, and how can we use it as a tool for personal empowerment? How can we make it personal? How can we change the interface so that individual people who aren't computer programmers who've been immersed and, you know, know the, you know, com different computer languages. How can we create an interface so ordinary people can access incre this incredible device? How can we create a communications network for computers? And there was this techno-optimism, this incredible, this faith that is born out of this political moment that can't be separated from the other things that are going on in the United States at the time and in the Bay Area at the time. That is, you know, these computers will save us. Like all the things you see wrong with the world, war, inequity, racism, sexism. If we just have computers and we have control of these computers and we're communicating through them and we're connecting and understanding one another, then this is going to fix it. Who are some of the names we know today that came out of the Homebrew Computing Club? Well, the two most famous names that come out of it are Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, the two co-founders of Apple, who show up at the one of the first meetings of this this kind of rangy group of computer hobbyists, of people who are playing around with personal computing and building, you know, soldering their own motherboards and building their own devices. It's, you know, these are, these are guys who grew up, you know, playing with radio sets in their basements and they've now graduated to, you know, building these machines. They show up, um, kind of two young guys, and they kind of come in hauling this, this device that Wozniak has designed. And it's this computer, it's this motherboard that is more elegant and simple and 
sophisticated than pretty much anything anyone else is doing. Um, the it's the Apple One. The Apple One's so funny that if you see, you can easily Google now an image of the original Apple One, and there's uh, it, they they housed it in this wooden case that looks like someone built it in a high school shop class. <laughs> it was very rudimentary, um, but it inside was a very sophisticated device. The Homebrew Computer Club was this way for these technologists to tra trade ideas. Um, it was very collaborative. It was about okay, I've I figured out this technical hack, and I'm going to share it with you. Um, it was not about making money or commercializing yet, but out of that group of people, which grows steadily, they have these monthly meetings, gets bigger and bigger, out of this comes an industry, a whole host of little personal computer companies, Apple being one of them, and they're, they create a, a whole really transformative new generation of computing, microcomputing, which then becomes what we know as desktop or personal computing. And important in that story, venture capitalists and lawyers. Extremely important, and they're often left out. So one of the things I wanted to do in the book was show the other parts of this Silicon Valley Galapagos who were really critical to understanding why it grew and why it's, it's been so successful at generating generation after generation. What you have in Silicon Valley, which you don't have anywhere else, are specialized venture capital firms. Venture capital existed other places too, but this was high-tech venture capital. Many of the people who were venture capitalists were first in, they were engineers or they were in technology companies themselves. Many of them came out of the semiconductor industry and they kind of, their next generation was to start venture capital firms and become investors. You see this again and again in the Valley. You have people who are in one, you know, in a company, they do well, they have a good exit, a good good IPO, or they get acquired, and then they become investors themselves. And they're the ones who are mentoring, and they're just they're picking the winners for the next generation. So venture capitalists are really critical. One thing that, so you have all these little c computer companies that are starting up out of this rangy, you know, hobbyist community. What sets Apple apart? They get the venture capitalists to back them really early. They get venture capital funding from some established venture capitalists. They also get executive leadership from someone who was a veteran of, of Intel, a guy named Mike Markla, who came in. He had, you know, made a healthy amount of money. He was kind of semi-retired in his mid-30s, and he decides to put a chunk of money into Apple personally and then come in as a kind of adult supervision, as they call it in the Valley. You have, you know, the two Steves were not capable of running a, you know, really didn't have managerial experience at all. Um, they were pretty unconventional guys. And so they, uh, so Markula is, you know, creates a organizational structure that's more like a business and more traditional. Uh, even though Apple positions itself very effectively as a countercultural company, a think different company, it is has more in common with, um, you know, ordinary corporate America than you might expect. Um, well, we're going to run out of time for all the history, yes. but I wanted to get uh, very quickly to Ronald Reagan. We have a clip I want to show of Ronald Reagan talking about a very important project to him, the Strategic Defense Initiative, oh, yes. SDI. Yeah. Let's watch that, and we'll talk about this California governor who comes to Washington and how he impacts your story. Okay. There's been a tendency by some in Congress to discuss SDI as if its funding could be determined by purely domestic considerations, unconnected to what the Soviets are doing. Well, SDI is a vital insurance policy, a necessary part of any national security strategy that includes deep reductions in strategic weapons. It is a cornerstone of our security strategy for the 1990s and beyond. We will research it. We will develop it. 
And when it's ready, we'll deploy it. Lots of money coming into this. How did it affect Silicon Valley? A lot of money coming into it. What was, what was SDI? SDI was really a supercomputing project. It was a project that was going to require, in order to work, was going to require an immense amount of computing power. And so it, is, it becomes this incredible resource for computer science and other related disciplines. And the funny thing is, is that a lot of the computer scientists in Silicon Valley were very much against SDI. They were, a number of them were against it technically. They were like, this is not going to work. This is just, you know, you can't, it, there's, there's, there's a possibility for error, and error would be catastrophic. Um, it will require so much. We, we, we aren't there yet technologically. It's kind of reminds me a little bit about some of the conversations about autonomous vehicles, driverless cars. You know, we aren't some things that people want to see happen. We aren't quite there yet. But also philosophically, a lot of these, you know, this is the people who are who are building computers, who are programming computers, um, who are on the faculty of Stanford or working at research institutes like SRI in the Valley. They're, they're the, the generation, the anti-war generation. They're the, the ones who see, uh, you know, they want to make peace, not war. They want to, um, they see Reagan's, you know, they're, they're politically and philosophically opposed to what the Reagan administration is doing. And so they're, but this is one, I think, one of the wonderful things in kind of understanding this relationship and how this evolves. Because you have some of the people who are, the biggest beneficiaries of some of this money, because the money keeps on flowing. There's, it's coming through DARPA, it's coming through all these, these agencies, and it's going towards, a lot of it's going towards computing. Uh, even some of the people who are the biggest beneficiaries are simultaneously kind of, you know, protesting and picketing and having meetings and, and writing open letters. And this ability to dissent while still being part of the system, I think, is a really important you know, when we think right now about, for example, competition with China in technology, it, the, you know, the difference in this political system has, it, it, recognizing how much the American political system has made Silicon Valley possible, um, not always intentionally. Uh, sometimes it's been unintended consequences, the Immigration Act being an example of that. I mean, there's example after example after example. Uh, that that But that is, that's, that's this interplay that I find so interesting and really important in understanding as we're talking now about what's going to happen next and what's the role of Washington. The, you need to understand this history and these, these interesting complexities and the distinctive only in America aspect of so much of it. The next clip, I want to fast forward to the Clinton administration, yes. for, for whom you worked, uh, and Al Gore. Uh, this is uh, actually before they took office. And the summit that they called together to encourage entrepreneurialism. Let's watch. A lot of the infrastructure investment we've made over the last 200 years has been in infrastructure that makes it easier for us to move around uh, the resources that used to be even more important. They're still important. But if the key resource is knowledge today, shouldn't we be giving a lot more emphasis? to the kind of national infrastructure we need to, to share information uh, and create and share knowledge like the information superhighways referred to earlier, digital libraries, the, the software and the programs that make it possible for children to come home after school and plug into the Library of Congress. So 
uh, during the Clinton and Gore administration, the 90s were the boom in, in yeah. Silicon Valley, and uh, a lot of people made a lot of money. How responsible was uh, administration and government policies for that boom? Uh, they, the, the government played a big role. I, I love that clip. You know, the other person that the, the close-up shot is, of course, of John Scully, who was then CEO of Apple, who was a very close, um, you know, there there during 92, 93, uh, he appears in just sitting next to Hillary Clinton at this first state of the Clinton State of the Union in 1993. Uh what you know the the government is responsible. What what Al Gore talks about in this clip, the, what was then known as the information superhighway, but this notion of infrastructure. This was the basic. You did have to have that foundational infrastructure in order for the internet boom to happen. The internet was existed since 1969. It was a network for researchers, for military, for people on different parts of the defense research establishment, but also academic researchers to communicate with one another. In the 1980s, it gradually starts opening up, but up until 1991, it was what was called the walled garden of the of the internet, where you, you could not do any sort of commercial transactions whatsoever on it. You could have companies could have a .com domain, but they couldn't buy and sell on it. So there was it was very limited. What happens in the early 1990s, in the late years of the George H. W. Bush administration, and the early years of the Clinton administration? is the laying down of this infrastructure, a lot of stuff that's happening below the political radar screen, by and large, um, including even, you know, like young political aides like me. I was working on other things. I wasn't working on tech at the time. And it was like, oh, what is this information superhighway stuff? Like, no one really understood it. And a few people were paying attention. But it was, you know, we were working on healthcare reform and, you know, other things that seemed more central. But there were a few lawmakers, Al Gore being one of them, Newt Gingrich being another, who in the 80s and the early 90s are keeping their eye on the ball and recognizing that you have to lay down the basic infrastructure and allow this internet backbone to be regulated to, to to become not regulated in terms of limiting what sort of ac commercial activity can happen on top of it, but creating some uh, creating a network that the government you know is 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 is, is encouraging entrepreneurial activity to happen. Uh, so there is a really important role that the government plays. You also report in the book that Al Gore went on the board of Apple and became a hundred millionaire in the process. Yes. How prevalent is that uh, in your telling of the story for people who were regulators or lawmakers then to leave public office and, and yeah. make a lot of money in this field? Well, I mean, Al Gore is, a, is an exceptional figure. Um, he does, he's exceptional in the sort of central role he play in terms of, you know, in the 1980s, <laughs> caring about computers when other people, other lawmakers really didn't quite get it. And also uh, in, um, in the central role that he played in kind of being the, the techie in chief for the Clinton administration, but also the, the immense wealth and success he's had. Um, and afterwards. And that is, but we do in the, you know, in the last 25 years, as Silicon Valley has gotten, gotten larger and wealthier, there has been much more traffic back and forth between D.C. and the Valley in terms of people who work in one and then move to another or vice versa. Um, and there are a lot of people in the Valley now who are veterans of the Clinton Bush II and Obama administrations who are now working in these companies. Um, a lot of them, there are a number of people, you know, these Valley companies, of course, are very important um, forces in Washington, D.C. politics. They've, they've grown their lobbying operations really significantly. In the 1990s, you didn't really 
they didn't have lobbyists. I mean, Microsoft had a one guy working out of a sales office up in Bethesda. That was, and he kind of would carry stuff around in the back of his Jeep. He, and, the, and now, how large is their lobbying group? Oh my gosh, I can't even. I, I, a lot bigger. <laughs> um, there's some of the largest, um, some of the biggest, you know, lobbying operations in Washington today are the big five tech companies. Presumably, the Microsoft antitrust suit had a lot to do with the recognition that Washington was going to be important yeah. in their development. It was a wake-up call for that company. Um, Bill Gates famously kind of joked, and when the FTC was first starting to, um, you know, bring bring enforcement action against Microsoft in the early 1990s. Gates scoffed, you know, the worst thing that could happen to me in in Washington is I could fall down the steps of the FTC and break my neck. <laughs> it turns out it was, uh, you know, Microsoft in the end didn't have to break up, but it came out with guardrails on what it could do. Um, it came out, you know, much more cautious, more constrained, uh, more um, perhaps less willing to dive into new markets in the aggressive fashion that it had before. Uh, you know, part of it was a new tech generation was growing. Um, there's not, you know, it's not like you wouldn't have had Google had Microsoft not been uh, hemmed down. Of course, we don't know. I mean, it's counterfactual history is impossible. But, you know, there, there's a new generation was growing. Um, and this happens again and again, this new generation of uh, regeneration of tech. The, the companies that are big now are not going to be big forever. Um, it'll be interesting to see who we're talking about 25 years from now um, and what relationship they will have to the companies right now. Very quick clip as we run out of time here. With uh, It seems like uh, it was really a long time ago. It was just 2011 and the first tweet from the White House with Barack Obama. Oh, Let's watch. I am going to make history here uh, as the first president to live tweet. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a computer over here. All right. Here's the question. Uh, in order to reduce the deficit, what costs would you cut and what investments would you keep? And the reason I thought this was a, a, an important question is, as all of you know, uh, we are going through uh, a spirited debate here in Washington. But it's important to get the whole country involved. That was only 2011, and now we have <laughs> a tweeting president who yeah. has used this platform. But the, the 2000s and the 2010 stories is the story of the rise of social mm -hmm. media and how yeah. important that became yep. to this platform. Yeah. And as we tell the story, we're now coming full circle. Yeah. So uh, what guarantee is there that Silicon Valley and all of its permutations will continue in the United States to have the dominance that it has? Right now, we're, we're hearing the Huawei story, and mm -hmm. China has certain intentions. The Soviet Russia has, as, excuse me, Russia has been a major player in using uh, disruptive technologies. Mm -hmm. um, there are other non-state actors who are using social media and other causes. Mm -hmm. How does Silicon Valley preserve the important role that it has played? Yeah. Well, I think looking back to its history and recognizing the foundational nature of public policy in creating a entrepreneurial sandbox, for lack of a better analogy. You know, what the U.S. government did is it, it put a whole lot of money in text direction and then got out of the way. Um, the Internet, you know, part of the dilemma of social media right now is that it's, it's a, an unregulated space. And, you know, funnily enough that that lack of regulation is part of what allowed it to grow, allowed these companies to blossom. In the 1990s, when those rules of the road were being laid down, you know, the infrastructure... There was a choice 
that was made, an agreement that the Internet companies would self-regulate. And that was made in order to encourage free speech and conversation on the Internet um, because it, in that time, the big worry was the, you know, the big businesses were, you know, media was cable, was Comcast, was, you know, Time Warner. <laughs> and, and now you have these companies that are perhaps more powerful than all of their media combined in some ways, in some places. So it, will it continue to dominate these other countries, like including China, are making foundational investments in research and development in advanced technology like AI, autonomous vehicles, and on and on. In higher education, those are not, those, the U.S. has drawn back. The U.S. is drawing back from the open doors of allowing the best and brightest from around the world to easily come here and be encouraged to come here and create. So it's, you know, impossible to predict the future, but there are ways in which we can create this foundation not just to replicate and continue what's going on right now, but think about, okay, how can new voices come into the conversation? How do you have more Ann Hardys? How do you have, where are the kids out there who aren't being, you know, wouldn't easily come into this world, and how do you bring them in? And how do you also get different voices in the room who are figuring out what the technological questions are and what the solutions are, ones that are made with, the world in mind because American technology companies have global markets. Things that are born and bred in California don't often translate easily to Myanmar or name your geography. So these are the real challenges that not just the Valley and not just Washington, but both and all of us who use these products (laughs) need to wrestle with going forward. It is a big and sprawling history full of interesting characters. The book is called The Code. Margaret O'Mara, thank you very much for spending an hour. We've just really skimmed the surface of the story that you tell. Thank you. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.